for a minute. We're going to do our scripture reading. Continuing on in 1 Corinthians, this is going to be 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, for to one is given through the Spirit, the utterance of wisdom, and to another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another, faith by the same Spirit, to another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another, the working of miracles, to another, prophecy, to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another, various kinds of tongues, to another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would, not, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, hey, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as He chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require." But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you still a more excellent way. It's God's Word. Amen. Children, you're dismissed. <clears throat>
This morning was one of those days when you go to print things and the printer does not work and the Wi-Fi does not work. So one of those one of those mornings. So I never have my iPad up here, so we're just going to see what happens. <clears throat> Well, again, Corinthians, we always want to keep it in context. We now are entering a new topic, so to speak, that of spiritual gifts, or I think better, just spiritual things. And we found that in Corinth, as we know, that there was all kinds of worldliness. We've talked about that continually, that the sinful culture was more in the church than it should have been. And so Paul is addressing several different areas, several different themes throughout his letters. He's dealing with worldliness in the church. He's saying, hey, you're divided like the pagans. You're viewing your bodies like the world. You're viewing sex like the world, marriage like the world, men and women like the world. You're seeking your own status. You're looking above other people and seeking your own position and power. You are divided between rich and poor. You're even oppressing the poor. So you are like the world too often. So Paul is continually correcting them. And so now he's moving to the issue of gifts. And he's saying, again, the same things. You're viewing spiritual things like pagan people. And so the Corinthians were falling into a kind of hyper-spirituality. They were exalting some gifts and some people above others, which was against the nature of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so this whole section between 12, 13, and 14 is focused on this issue. He is mainly likely dealing with the tongue speakers, the ones that thought that they were super spiritual and also the prophesiers, that they were kind of the super Christians. They were the spiritually elite with special access to God. And so that's the problem. But Paul doesn't just see a problem and say, okay, get rid of the whole thing because we know in chapter 1 he said that there was no spiritual gift lacking within them. And so Paul is all about spiritual experiences and spiritual gifts, but that's not the highest priority. And so he was not against the pursuit of spiritual gifts and even the earnest pursuit of spiritual gifts, but he was against the way that they were doing it, the way that they were exercising it, the lack of order, the pagan worldliness that they were falling into. So that's some of the setting And I was thinking, so now, again, we live in our culture, in our world, and there is kind of this thing happening in our culture where there's this spiritual sense, this kind of spirituality, health, the earth, kind of a syncretism between a bunch of things, kind of pull what you like from various religions and practices. There's even kind of an increase in things like interest in witchcraft, and kind of a woo-woo spirituality that happens in our culture. Well, at the same time, there is this scientistic, not science, science is good, but a scientistic worldview of reason, 
kind of Western culture, science, medicine is going to solve all the problems. Atheism, there is no God. And if you bounce around YouTube, YouTube, some of you may, some of you may not, podcasts, things like that. Sometimes there's almost a blending of these two things. A lot of meditation apps, mindfulness, psychedelics used in therapy and experience, a search for transcendence. So sometimes even a blend between you got radical atheists like Sam Harris talking about meditation. And so we live in this interesting kind of combination of this interest in spirituality and spiritual things and also sometimes this kind of bare rationality and science and kind of, hey, there's no other spiritual, there's no supernatural, it's just what we have here in this material world. And what's interesting is in the modern Western church, and not to put these two categories as mimicking those exactly, but in modern evangelicalism, you got some C's. You got cessationism versus what's called continuationism or the charismatic view. And so Christians disagree over the way in which spiritual gifts and such might function or not in the church. So just as a quick setup, because there may be some in both of these categories or maybe in between on likely a spectrum in these categories here and even among the elders, we have that as well. But the cessationist viewpoint would focus on, hey, the sign gifts, kind of these more supernatural, revelatory type gifts have ceased at the end of the apostolic age and the canon of Scripture. And the continuationist or charismatic position would be, no, no, the gifts are active in the post-apostolic age. And so those are kind of two different settings. To be absolutely upfront, I am completely and entirely in the continuationist camp um, that the gifts are active, that we should be pursuing all gifts all of the time. And I don't think that there is a verse that goes against that. But that's further discussion we won't totally get into. I'm just going to try to unpack what I'm seeing in this text. So that's where we're going to go. That's the setup. One other thing I wanted to point out is that gifts, sometimes we can become so focused on this issue of gifts, but gift is just a grace. It's just the grace given by God to the community. And I think we're going to see that even as we go throughout this. And I'm going to, it's probably going to be that kind of the first chunk of this takes a little longer than the last chunk of this. So if you're kind of going, wow, this guy's going a really long time, just Understand that we are going to do the entire chapter. So verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. So notice a few things. First, Paul is saying, hey, do not be ignorant about spiritual things. If you look at that word in your Bibles in the ESV, spiritual gifts, again, you see a footnote. And if you drop down, the footnote says spiritual persons because the point is the word gifts and such isn't there. There's a debate over is the spiritual gifts, is the spiritual persons. One commentator, I think, makes a good point. He says you should just think of this in terms of spiritual things. That's kind of both. There are spiritual persons. There are spiritual gifts that are outlined. Even as you go down further, you're going to see how there's varieties of ministries, varieties of gifts, varieties of activities. And so his point is, hey, on this whole kind of spiritual issue, all of the spiritual stuff in the Christian life and in the Christian community, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be ignorant. For some of us, and again in our culture, don't ignore it. Not his, 
But our culture, we could read this and kind of go, hey, some of you may kind of you know, keep me away from all that stuff. That just kind of gets us in trouble. There's all kinds of abuses and all of those issues. But I think we need to be directed by the text to hear, hey, don't be uninformed. Don't ignore this issue. We need to pursue it. In fact, if you take the whole context, I think a more positive way to say it would be not just do not be ignorant, do not ignore spiritual things, but actually pursue spiritual things. Pursue spiritual things eagerly and orderly, both. You don't just let enthusiasm run wild. We're going to find as we go through these chapters that there's a lot of eagerness um, that we should have toward the Holy Spirit and toward the spiritual realities that He might give. But also, there's this whole sense of orderliness that should be done in an orderly way. So, don't be ignorant. Be active in it. And don't be inactive in it. Don't ignore it. Don't just kind of push it off. We can kind of skip these chapters. Let's get on to the not-so-scary stuff. Verse 2. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols however you were led. And this is kind of paired with verse 3 as well. I think he's telling them, hey, don't fall into pagan syncretism. Don't be mixing and matching your pagan background into the church and into the things of the Spirit. And in fact, these first three verses, I think, are a really good setup to remind Paul is going after a particular worldview and setting there, and it kind of guides the whole chapter. It's easy to kind of skip over these first three verses and kind of get on to the other gift stuff. But he's saying, hey, pursue Jesus-centered spirituality. And so they were more influenced by paganism than having a Christian view on the things of the Spirit. So these aren't throwaway verses. Spiritual experiences, realities are real. They there were carried away, led astray into mute idols. And again, we just don't think of not speaking, which he's talking about there. The idols aren't speaking, but remember earlier in the Corinthian church, he talked about how behind these idols were demons, entities, deities. And during that time, you would have probably had things like being carried away and controlled and possessed by, by these powers, these demonic entities. They are real. They are real then and they are real now. And some that were getting all caught up in being possessed in ecstatic utterances and unintelligible things that might overtake you in your spiritual experience that you had. And so he's saying, hey, you were always kind of moving around. You were always carried away. Another person translated it. You were seized by some power. And so he's contrasting that kind of attitude. Hey, that's not how the church should look. I just kind of seized and carried away and overtaken by some power in some odd and unusual lack of orderly way. He is kind of cutting against that, contrasting what should happen in the church with what was happening there. So, we should operate in spiritual things like Christians, not like pagans. Hey, you're new. You're new people. You've been saved. You should be different. You should exercise these in different ways. And so, no syncretism. Verse 3, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And this was interesting. One commentator was kind of unpacking this issue. And if I can find it here, this is what they said. 
Pagans believed that the gods were capable of influencing their objectives against others in areas of life, such as athletic competition, matters of the heart, business, and politics. This was done in pagan worship through the use of curses against their opponents. Sometimes they were written on lead, deposited in the temple and wells, and sworn in the name of a god. A curse tablet found in the temple of Demeter in Corinth read, Hermes of the underworld, grant heavy curses. Jesus be cursed can be translated, Jesus is a curse, or Jesus grant a curse. For the two words are literally anathema, Jesus. Let him be anathema, where the verb is in the present tense. Were the Corinthians using the name of Jesus as a curse against opponents in the same way pagans did with other gods? Is Paul saying that no person speaking by the Spirit of God curses others with anathema Jesus in order to disadvantage them? Only those led by the Spirit will affirm that Jesus is Lord. Christians were meant to be using their gifts for the blessing and the welfare of others. So it could be, and again, this is where some of the reading happens. We've got to be careful with that kind of stuff, but trying to gather what's happening in the culture then. You're finding these tablets of very, using demonic entities or Greek gods to curse others. If you've kept up with archaeology at all, I think they just found a recent one for the Old Testament and some curses and maybe even the Balaam thing. But the point is, this kind of thing was common. So we as Christians, when we're using our spiritual gifts or have a spiritual experience, we shouldn't be cursing other people in the name of Jesus. That's one possibility. But then the other one is just cutting against syncretism. You will not be exalting any other entity above the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ in the gospel and in the good news has not just saved our souls, but he's conquered the spiritual powers that are real, that are out there, that are entities, and he has defeated them. And so we cannot ever be mixing the entities of demonic with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is Lord, period. And so any kind of mixing, and again, in our pluralistic age, it can be easy to kind of just grab things from everything and kind of patchwork our own version of Christianity. And we are people that say, Jesus is Lord. There is no other. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Another commentator I thought really summed that up well, if I can find it. This is what he said. The presence of the Spirit and power and gifts make it easy for God's people to think of the power and gifts as the real evidence of the Spirit's presence. Not so for Paul. The ultimate criterion of the Spirit's activity is the exaltation of Jesus as Lord. Whatever takes away from that, even if they be legitimate expressions of the Spirit, begins to move away from Christ to a more pagan fascination with spiritual activity as an end in itself. Which makes sense to Corinth. Hey, hold up. Guys, getting a little crazy with this spiritual stuff and all the spirituality stuff. Let's remember, we are exalting the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. And so here we see that gifts imitate God. Gifts imitate God. The point is never the gift. The point is the God who gives the gift. All through this, it shows that the source is God. And, like God, there is a diversity in God Himself. Meaning, in the Godhead. In the Trinity. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, 
three persons, the mind-blowing thing that sometimes we treat as an afterthought, but is not, is rooted through all of the pages of Scripture. And we see it right here. You see it in three different spots in these verses. Notice, you have the Spirit in verse 4. Then you have the same Lord at the end of verse 4, referring to the Lord Jesus. Then you have the same God, the Father. So you have this Trinitarian framework that there is a unity in diversity. And in the church, there is a unity in diversity, a oneness. And when it comes to God, also a threeness. But the one God. So we have one God, three persons. We have one church with a bunch of different gifts. And that's okay. Unity and diversity. As many have said, it's not uniformity that God is looking for. He's looking for diversity. And we also see in this section that again, he's not just speaking of gifts because there are several things mentioned, several varieties here, varieties of gifts. There's that word. But then there's varieties of service. That comes like from the word that's used for deacon. You have deacon, those that were serving and helping in the church community. Remember when the widows happened in, in, in Acts? And the apostle was like, well, hey, we've got a lot of stuff to do. We're focusing on the word and preaching different things. And well, hey, we need people to go do stuff. They appointed deacons to serve. Then you have just kind of this activities, which uh, the Greek word kind of looks like energy, um, not in some weird forceful way, but just in the sense that there is other activities out there. So he's talking about all kinds of spiritual things, kind of the whole ball game here. <clears throat> and that there's also an emphasis on grace. Again, that's where the word comes from. So the charismata or the charismaton or however you say it is really focused on just grace. Favor, God's gifts, God's grace, God's favor in the church community. So it's not just about gifts, it's about ministries and it's about other activities. Verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Manifestation of the Spirit. One said that's the disclosure of the Spirit, the activity of the Spirit, the revealing of the Spirit. I think one person defined this issue of spiritual gifts really well. If I can, oh, there we go. That's what I thought would happen. <laughs> spiritual gifts are nothing less than God Himself in us, energizing our souls, imparting revelation to our minds, infusing power in our wills, and working His sovereign and gracious purposes through us. Spiritual gifts must never be viewed deistically, as if a God out there has sent something to us down here. Spiritual gifts are God present in, with, and through human thoughts, human deeds, human words, and human love. So we're given the manifestation, the revealing of the Spirit, that the Spirit is at work in the midst. That's what the gifts are showing. It's not highlighting the gifts. It's highlighting the source, the person that is active and alive in the life of of the church. Notice again, common good. So the point is it's for everybody. Your gifts are supposed to be used for the benefit of everybody. Not just so you can have an isolated experience out in the forest between you and Jesus. But that the gifts are given to benefit and upbuild and edify and bring everybody up. The common good, which would have been different at that point as well. Because they would have had a real focus on kind of you go after these localized kind of um, um, temples in one spot or these people that might have these special gifts to operate 
in a spiritual way. Think of kind of like a shaman kind of a thing. And, 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 and Paul is cutting against all of that. He's saying, this is for everybody, all people functioning in all kinds of different ways for the common good. We're not just seeking to kind of elevate these really special people with the secret access. That is the pagan way of thought that is false. And sometimes that can happen in charismatic circles as well, which to be fair, it can also happen in non-charismatic circles where the great teacher is elevated above all else. The point is, when the Spirit works, it's supposed to be for everybody. Even though it's going to look different in each person. One example of this, if I can find it. I thought this was just kind of a helpful view. This is from an African journal of evangelical theology. As in pagan religion generally, the assumption was that spiritual power was concentrated in just a few individuals who had the expertise to access the power. Similarly at Corinth, there seems to have been some who believed that the ability to produce certain spiritual phenomena, especially tongues and prophecy, served as proof that some believers possessed the Spirit in a way that others did not. Paul is concerned to refute those Corinthians who claimed their gift of glossolalia, that's the Greek word for tongues, is a special, perhaps unique demonstration of spirit possession. He corrects this notion with the assertion that all who confess Jesus to be Lord do so by the Spirit and have the Spirit. Paul wants to affirm from the start that all the members of the body of Christ are spiritual. He then goes on to assert, and not only that all had been baptized by one Spirit into one body, but also that each one of the believers had been given at least one manifestation of the Spirit. It's an extremely important point, which he goes on to unpack by now turning to the list of these gifts in verses 8 through 10. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom and another the utterance of knowledge. Again, commentators go all over the place on this kind of issue. We know wisdom and knowledge were big things. Remember back at the beginning of Corinthians, he's talking a lot about wisdom and spiritual wisdom. And he's like, hey, you know what real wisdom is? It's not all you kind of cool philosophies and stoicism and all that kind of stuff out there in Greek culture. It's actually that Jesus was crucified, dead, buried, and resurrection. That's where the real wisdom is. And that's where the real knowledge is. So maybe he's kind of referring to that, that the Spirit's empowering people to kind of preach and teach that. Or it could be that it's this more revelatory sense, for those of you who might be familiar with some of the more charismatic circles, things like they call um, words of knowledge, and such, where kind of you experience a revelatory thing about another person that you have, you would not know, and it's said, and you know it, and the Spirit gives it to you. Some people think, wow, that's really weird. Um, but let me tell you, somebody else who had that was somebody not known to be associated necessarily with a super Pentecostal type of experience, and that is Charles Spurgeon, the great um, preacher years and years ago. He t- there was one situation that happened in his sermon. Listen to, listen to this. This is an autobiography. Um, one person was describing this event to a friend. And this is what the person who experienced this says. Mr. Spurgeon looked at me as if he knew me. And in his sermon, he pointed to me and told the congregation that I was a shoemaker and that I kept my shop open on Sundays. And I did, sir. I should not have minded that. But he also said that I took nine pence the Sunday before and that there was four pence profit out of it. I did take nine pence that day and four pence was just the profit, but how we should know that, I could not tell. 
Then it struck me that it was God who had spoken to my soul through him. So I shut up my shop the next Sunday. At first I was afraid to go again to hear him, lest he should tell the people more about me. But afterwards I went and the Lord met with me and saved my soul. It's from the autobiography of Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon also says this, I could tell as many as a dozen similar cases in which I pointed at somebody in the hall without having the slightest knowledge of the person or any idea that what I said was right except that I believed I was moved by the Spirit to say it. And so striking has been my description that the persons have gone away and said to their friends, Come see a man that told me all things that I ever did beyond a doubt. He must have been sent out of God to my soul or else he could not have described me so exactly. Not only so, but I've known many instances in which the thoughts of men have been revealed from the pulpit. I've sometimes seen persons nudge their neighbors with their elbow because they had got a smart hit. And they have been heard to say when they were going out, the preacher told us just what we said to one another when we went in at the door. Anyway, it kind of goes on there. The point is, is God can do this. And it can happen. And so we need to be, in my view, open to such things. Asking, hey God... Show up in whatever way you want within our midst and give us as many gifts as you want within our midst. And that's something to say about this. This isn't meant to be just an exhaustive list as this is it. There could even be more. It's just him kind of showing, probably rebuking some of the people there that think tongues is just the big deal. And he's kind of saying, hey, no, there's all kinds of them. Here's a bunch of them for you. Here's a bunch of things that can happen in your midst. To another faith, this is verse 9, by the same Spirit. So faith can come by the Spirit. We know faith itself is a gift. Faith's a gift. You don't just work up faith in yourself. Faith is a gift of God to open your eyes and to see the beauty of Jesus Christ and that's how people get saved. By grace, gift, by faith in Jesus. But this probably isn't referring to that. It could be more of like an, an expectation, like a certainty of given a special gift of faith that something will happen in the moment that is out of the ordinary and unusual and extraordinary that God would do. And that kind of a gift of faith. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. What's interesting about this is there's a plural form here, so it's probably not focused so much on a healer, the special healer in the midst with all the healing activities. But hey, God just might show up and use you one day through the gift of healing when you pray for somebody. Not that there's necessarily going to be this healing person that we're going to have this giant rally around. But he can just give a plural form. He gives many gifts of healing for many different types of illnesses at many different varieties of places. And so we can say, hey, God, would you do that? And would you help us to expect that and pray for that and hope for that in our midst? To another, the working of miracles. Again, a miracle something that's, and I always say that word wrong. My family makes fun of me all the time, so if I butchered it right there, I may have. Um, but something extraordinary, out of the normal and the mundane. To another prophecy. Things like foretelling, but not just that. You go into verse 14, it talks about just words that would upbuild and edify and encouragement and consolation in the community. Not always some special moment of seeing some person with a staff in their hand and lightning bolts flying and just kind of that type of prophecy. But it can be somewhat ordinary. A word that God gives to a person to encourage them and help them. <clears throat> to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. It's kind of like what he's talking about up above. That there, hey, there's, there's also false spirits out there. But the, but the ability to discern and distinguish. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. And some say, hey, this is kind of at the end because he's kind of 
pointing fingers at them a little bit. You know, they're all stuck on themselves wanting to be first. But you'll notice tongues, a lot of these lists will come at the end. And again, there's debate here. Is it actual tongues like, like you were given? Um, I could all of a sudden start speaking Chinese right now because there would be a person who only knew Chinese in our midst and God give a gift to interpret. If you look at Acts 2, a lot of those seem to be languages that the others heard when they thought they were all drunk. Um, or just a kind of a, a, a heavenly language, or if I speak in the tongue of men and of angels, maybe a language that's not. Again, there's debate on that particular issue. But that there would be tongues and then an interpretation of tongues. And later we see in 14, you just don't start spouting tongues without interpretation. The whole point is it would become intelligible. It would become understood. It would be edifying to the common good of the community, not just to go off in a trance and speak something with nobody else really helping anybody. Like, oh, well, that was cool. What do we do with that now? So he's kind of cutting against that. Now, verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit. Again, he's back to the point. It's not the gifts, but the active presence and power of the person of the Holy Spirit. And that's what's emphasized here is that he apportions to each one individually as he wills. He is sovereign over this. He's in charge of who gets the gifts and when they get the gifts. This is God's this is God's issue. He will hand it out as he will, and it's not just an impersonal force, but it is a person with a will which is contrary to something like what was going on in the community, kind of these beads carried away to this and that other trance and experience with this and that other deity and demon. But this is a person of the Spirit, a part of the very Godhead. And that He is in charge of the gifts. You just can't work these up by yourself. Though, as we see through all this, it says, pursue it, pursue it. So again, there's always this human responsibility, divine activity and agency. But man, the Spirit is sovereign and the Spirit is a person. Verse 12 through 13. For just as the body is one and many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. Again, oneness, manyness, unity, diversity. And the focus here is, is on the fact that you were all baptized into one body. So this again can cut against some teachings in charismatic communities that is very focused on things like second experiences and things like that. Now, the Spirit can give all kinds of experiences and we should expect those things. But we've got to be careful when we're dividing up classes within Christianity. And he's saying, no, no, at conversion, you were all in one Spirit. You were all baptized into the Spirit in one body. Jews, Greeks, slaves are free. This is... This is different again than the world. The world divides by things like race, religion, politics, slaves, free, religious, irreligious, Jews and Greeks. And this is saying God is inclusive. I don't mean that in the weird way. I mean that in the broadest way that any person without exception can be a part of this community. And that was one of the things that the early church was known as. One of the most inclusive communities that there was. Gathering all different types of people, baptized into the one family of the Spirit. So, we see just that beauty, that kind of democratization and universality of what is the church and body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Full of diversity, not uniformity. Very important for us to hear. The church is going to be different. And that is a good thing. 
And so it's cutting against the, the, the way of life in paganism. So the Spirit is poured out and given to all. In 1 John, it talks about how you have all been anointed by the Spirit, not just certain super special people. We must believe that and understand that. Verse 14, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, Because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? Again, you all need each other. All of you need each other. And you don't be envious of the other person's gift. And don't neglect your own gift. But pursue it. Use it. Don't get focused on who's on stage or what famous person wrote that particular book or preached that particular sermon. But you all are a part of the body. You are to be involved in using whatever gift God has given you from the most hidden to the most public. Do not neglect it. Do not neglect it. And if you are neglecting it, I appeal to you to pursue it. Say, God, I need your help. Maybe I have been neglecting some stuff. Would you help use me? Would you use me in the church community? Or maybe there's a gift that you haven't used in a long time that you should be using. So I just want to call you to use it. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as He chose. Again here, the sovereignty of God. He's the one arranging. He's the one making this body. He made our bodies and all the different parts of the body from the weird to the unusual to the more presentable, which He goes on to say, to the unpresentable. He's given all of these one body with a bunch of different parts. And God is doing the same thing in the church. If you all were a single member, where would the body be? Just a foot walking around. Again, the church needs you. This image is supposed to be kind of humorous. And sometimes that's how we can function. We get caught up in these super gifts. We're always looking for that. We've got to have the whole thing. So God, would you do that? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Again, many, many parts. We need all of the parts. And so don't be dissatisfied with what God has given you, but use it and ask God to help you and grant grace. This was interesting. I thought um, one person kind of talking about, maybe some of you are wondering, well, I don't really have a gift or how do I know which gift or what do I go for? Um, but not to look inside yourself. We can, be so, we can do that so much as kind of isolated, individualistic Americans. We're just going to find the gift in ourselves. But actually look outside yourself when you hear of need in the community. When you hear of need in your local church community, in your city, go to the need. Go to where the need is, whether you think you have the gift or not. This is what one says. But my preference is that instead of looking inwardly at ourselves, that we look outwardly to whatever needs there are in the church. Once a need is identified, step into the situation, ask God to empower you appropriately to meet whatever need is in front of you and serve. In other words, I like the idea of letting our gifts find us rather than us finding our gifts. So stop the introspection and go find a need and meet it, trusting that the Spirit will enable you to serve others to their benefit. So the lesson is don't be AWOL in the church community. 
we need you. Verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. So again, now we're entering into the kind of the superiority attitude, the elitism that would have framed the Corinthian community. I got no need of you. Nor again, the heads of the feet. I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And again, we love how Paul does this. He's always interested in, in the weak parts and identifying with the weaker ones. Not the public parts. Not this part right here standing in front of you talking that may be more public than whatever gift you have. Ridiculous. Don't fall into that trap. Use whatever gift you have. I need you. Other people need you. Don't think I should not think I'm superior because I can get up and maybe preach a sermon. Stupid. That could be nothing if the heart attitude is not right and if God hasn't breathed on it and used it. We all need each other's gifts. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. So what you have in whatever gift you have is indispensable and is needed. And so may God give that to you and help you to, to see that. And even these, these parts that are unpresentable, these parts that are like they don't even look like they're maybe even public, he just gives priority. He's heaping honor on those parts, not the places where you might think the honor is, like the awesome tongue speakers in that community. On these parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. Again, this reversal of the kingdom, which always happens, the upside-down nature of, of the kingdom, which our more presentable parts do not require, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, and there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And again, you care for one another. Encourage me in my gift. I should encourage you in your gift. Be caring and loving toward one another. That's what the Spirit does. When the Spirit of God showed up on the person of Jesus Christ, He released the weak and He set them free. He released the captives. He released the imprisoned. He delivered people. He healed people. He, in compassion, cared for people. The Spirit works in compassion in the community of the Christian church. Bob even mentioned that at the memorial yesterday. How blessed his family has been by our church and by other churches through meeting the needs, aiding the one who is hurting, caring for them. What a work! You have been a part of the work of God. Your gifts the manifestation of the Spirit has happened in this church for what we heard yesterday. You heard the testimony from the person's mouth. Amazing. That's the Spirit. That's the manifestation and the presence of the Spirit. <clears throat> if one member suffers, all suffer together. When people suffer, come alongside them, help them, seek to aid them. What's interesting about this Again, that doesn't mean sometimes we can read that and then kind of go, wait a second, if there was all these gifts happening, where's the suffering? Does the gifts of healing happen all the time? Paul's still assuming, hey, suffering's still going to happen. May not always get fixed. May not always get healed. There's going to be suffering. Man, when God gives the gift of healing, awesome. May He do it more. But hey, when somebody is suffering and it wasn't given, God gives those gifts of coming alongside and aiding and praying. What wonderful gifts. One member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Joy and honor is how the church should look in one another's manifestations of the Spirit and gifts and graces that God has given. So no 
superiority. In fact, a priority for the inferior. Spiritual care, not spiritual withdrawal, is what God is after. Verse 27, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping administration, and various kinds of tongues. There it is at the end again. Kind of showing, and again we see here, this isn't just about gifts again, about all the graces that God has given in various ministries and ways of, in ways of serving to the church of Jesus Christ. And notice, some of these aren't the weird ones. These are helping, aiding. Some of you have just that gift of help. You fit the need and you go meet it. My buddy Brian is here today. He's helped us many times. He's met the need. That's God's Spirit. That's God's grace in the community. So, again, don't just get hung up on all the flashy stuff. But don't be afraid of it. God gives it to you awesome. We should pray, pray for it. We should pursue it. But helping, administrating. And again, that probably isn't just kind of a managerial CEO type, but, but the sense of kind of guiding something that's happening by the Spirit and the ability to guide a community and administrate. And then, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles? All these questions, the point is, no, they all don't. So you don't just have to get that one particular gift to show that you're filled with the Spirit. You can be filled with the Spirit and have a diversity of, of a different gift. Everybody doesn't get the same one. Some people do get multiple ones, even Paul. But a lot of them. I speak in tongues more than you all. And he's an apostle and he does all kinds of different things. God has extraordinarily gifted Paul. But all of us have been given gifts. And so don't just get hung up on one. And then earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you still a more excellent way. That, that idea there is earnest desire covet. You're supposed to go after them. Pursue them. Later on in verse 14, it talks about pursuing prophecy. And so, don't neglect the gifts. But I will show you a more excellent way. In 1 Corinthians 13, the marriage chapter, which is not a marriage chapter. Well, it is, but it isn't. It's a chapter in the context of spiritual gifts. A classic example of how we just kind of root out verses and pages from what's happening right in the middle of it. He's trying to show them, hey, you're not walking in love. What Christians do is they love one another in their use of gifts. That's what the church does. The church is to be known to love. So your gifts better look like love. Because if they don't, there's a problem. There's a problem. Love is not an isolated gift, but it's the guiding way. Love guides the gifts. It's the way. The way that it looks should be loving, intelligible, edifying, glorifying, helpful to the community. And so that's what 1 Corinthians 13 will get into. And it's there for a reason. Because they could have a bunch of supernatural experience and not have love, and that's nothing. So, I'm basically done. The good news of the Gospel, again, Let's bring this full circle. God comes to us, not just in a spiritual out there, follow principles and find your way to God. God comes down into the midst, into the tangible, into the earth, into the ordinary. The extraordinary comes into the ordinary. 
The strong comes into the weak. And the most excellent way, He comes in the most excellent way. He comes in love. Self-giving love. To die for sinners. To draw all people who would come unto Himself. He comes for the common good. He comes that everybody might know Him. That all who would believe and trust in Him could be in Christ and in a new Spirit-filled community. He doesn't come seeking His own status. He comes laying down His life like a slave, like a servant. He doesn't come with an unintelligible message. He proclaims Himself the good news out of His own mouth and then He shows it with His very life bodily on the tree. The Word made flesh. The spoken Word of God clearly spoken to all people. 1 Corinthians 15, which is coming. Resurrection. The first importance, the most important thing. So we have the most excellent way, love, the most important thing, the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That all of us are called to believe. Coming at us in ordinary food and drink, ordinary human, enfleshed person is transformed into the extraordinary, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Which we remember that something spiritual happens when by faith, you partake of, communi- of communion that the extraordinary invades the ordinary. And that's what's going to happen here in just a minute. It's not a ritual. It's not just kind of a thing, a symbol that we do that the extraordinary right now can invade the ordinariness of your life by faith in what Jesus Christ has done. So let's take that together because He has given His body and blood for us.
1 Corinthians 11:23 For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and we had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. God bless you this week. We're going to sing another song.
Don't forget the potluck. There's plenty of food back there. I know that. <laughs> yeah. Stay in fellowship.